I'm Jack, and welcome to The Spectre, a collaborative podcast produced by the Young Communist League with support from the Communist Party USA. This episode, our guest is Bennett Shoup, a queer organizer based in Washington, D.C. for the Claudia Jones School for Political Education and a member of the D.C. Young Communist League. They organize and agitate within the local community and teach radical LGBTQ plus history and theory. They recently spoke with my co-host Emma about various topics of their research for their pamphlet titled Queer Against Capital, a Marxist understanding of LGBTQ plus oppression and liberation in the United States, as well as the issues queer and trans people currently face in this country. So let's get into it. So to start, Bennett, could you give us a brief outline of the function of homophobia under capitalism? So I come from the understanding that homophobia and transphobia are manifestations of capitalism trying to maintain its control of reproduction um, and social reproduction. So understanding that capitalism relies on the reproduction of the labor force, both physically and emotionally um, throughout every generation in order to have laborers. So this is a very simple kind of premise of capital that you need a working force in order to achieve profit. It becomes an issue if people don't reproduce or if people enter into kind of sexual or romantic or even social relationships which don't um, support that reproduction of the labor force. Homophobia becomes a kind of ruling class ideology that is designed to prevent non-reproductive relations. Um, it is meant to maintain the subordination of women and the access of capital to reproductive labor. And so a particularly illustrative example of how this has functioned historically is the example of the post-war period after World War II. You know, in the 30s, there's this kind of mass unrest and this this huge economic crisis. And this also results in plummeting birth rates. And that is a problem for capitalism, especially when it's kind of desperately trying to reconstitute itself after this kind of massive collapse. In addition, you have the advent of war, which is totally changing the relationship between men and women. You have women entering the industrial workforce in a kind of never before seen way. Um, you have men being forcibly placed in uh, single gender environments. And so you have this kind of unsettling of this like reproduction system. Capitalism has kind of historically used to function and that becomes a problem. After the war, we see the most unprecedented kind of crackdown on same-sex intimacy and same-gender sexuality that we've ever seen kind of in United States history. Um, you have mass arrests, you have the passing of kinds of prohibitions on homosexuality and gender nonconformity and all of these things. What this illustrates is that in order to kind of reformulate its capitalism targets queer people, feminists, and, you know, kind of other minority populations as a means to kind of regain its its hold on, on the economy. You see all of this propaganda about how gay people are out to groom your children and destroy the American family. And that really highlights 
the goals that capital has in mind, this kind of preservation of, of the nuclear family as this kind of reproductive unit, which ensures that capitalism is going to have access to not just renewed labor force, but also the kind of emotional reproduction of that labor force, you know, cooking, cleaning, doing all of these things that are tasks that are historically assigned to women as unpaid labor within the home. And so in order to make sure that people kind of re-enter into these relationships after these major upsets, you see not only this huge crackdown on homosexuality, but also, you know, the government providing all of these incentives for young people to get married, to enter into reproductive relationships. And so it kind of highlights that the nuclear family is is enshrined within the capitalist structure for this very reason, that it allows it that kind of free access to reproduction without having to do the work itself of personally providing for children. And so we see this major spike in marriage and reproduction after the post-war period. It's become quite nostalgic in the mind of conservatives for this very reason that this is kind of the heyday of the American nuclear family, that, you know, you have middle class and working class, predominantly white folks entering into, you know, suburbs and creating these this kind of like stable family life. And this is exactly what capitalism wants. This is exactly what capitalism had in mind. So while there may have been important advances in the economic well-being of a lot of people, at the same time, it is also a, a strategy of regulation under monopoly. This era of homophobia and transphobia, that it's meant as a preventative measure. Um, it's meant to illegalize and stigmatize any kind of non-reproductive behavior, non-gender conforming behavior, so it can reaffirm the family in American society and American culture. And historically, it's been very effective in doing that. We see, you know, all this propaganda even today about, oh, well, gay people are trying to destroy the family. Trans people are trying to groom your children and turn them trans. And, you know, we see the same kind of pattern again. After, you know, a mass kind of economic and social and health crisis, there is this attempt to reformulate the kind of basic building blocks of capitalism, in particular the family. And we have this huge spike in homophobia and transphobia in particular. And this is really important for Marxists to pay attention to this kind of historical repetition of these events that homophobia and transphobia serve the goals of capitalism in order to reconstitute itself after these moments of, of, of crisis, a productive crisis and reproductive crisis. It serves to reaffirm and constrict people within these tight gender roles about what men and women are supposed to do and what labor they are supposed to do, as well as saying, well, you can't engage in sexuality in this way. Sexuality is only acceptable when it's, you know, reproductive. And there's been more lenience about it over time, but with the repeal of Roe v. Wade and these attempts to further restrict reproductive freedoms, we see the same kind of conservative ruling class logic um, emerging and being effective in terms of galvanizing a, a base around its program. And so we as Marxists have to be really cognizant of, well, homophobia, transphobia, it's not just about bigotry or hate. It's not just for the cruelty of it. It is a distinct kind of ruling class strategy in order to maintain the relations of capital that are most efficient in its reproduction as a system. 
I think there often can be some misunderstandings about the way that we interpret the harms of racism, the harms of homophobia and transphobia, and where these come from and how they relate to capitalism. So I'm wondering if you could give me a little bit of your explanation and your understanding of how these are all related. So the important thing to recognize about homophobia and transphobia is that they are part of broader kind of programs and ruling class ideologies that govern sex, sexuality, and gender, and race, as well as a number of other things. When it comes to understanding the connection between homophobia, transphobia, and racism, it's important to go back in history and look at the kind of almost really paranoid regulation of sexuality particularly in relation to race relations. We can go all the way back to the 19th century and even further to look at how there is this panic about interracial relationships, interracial sexuality, and how we see as well this kind of language and and propaganda about the supposed deviant sexuality of people of color and their deviant family structures. We can look at things like the Moynihan Report, which blamed the suffering of Black communities on supposedly dysfunctional families. When we look at these kinds of social situations, what we see is that this homophobic, transphobic ideology also serves to maintain not just reproductive labor, but also the super exploitation of people of color in the United States. You know, there are all of these different campaigns throughout U.S. history that try to, you know, stigmatize kinship relations between people of color, as well as enforce a kind of very strict nuclear family onto those populations. You have like the Americanization campaigns towards Mexican immigrants, which claimed that Mexican family structures were deviant and thus needed correcting. You have these these violent, supposed, quote unquote, re-education or assimilation campaigns towards indigenous people that really tried to force people into this very white, capitalistic family structure. And so it's really important to understand that we cannot hold homophobia and transphobia apart from these larger conversations about sexuality and gender in general, but we also cannot hold them separate from these conversations about race. When we look at the rendering of racialized groups as kind of surplus by capitalism, we see this need from capital to regulate these populations. So we see the justification of the oppression and super exploitation of different communities of color in the United States through language about how they are sexually deviant, about how they are sexually inferior to the white population. And not only does this prevent interracial solidarity and creates fear and stigma and violence towards racial minorities, but it also serves capital's reproductive goals. So again, this kind of conversation about the relationship between sexuality, the relations between men and women, and the relations between different racial groups, these conversations are all interconnected. Because the primary function of homophobia and transphobia is to kind of maintain these kind of inherently unstable relations of capitalism that kind of function on ideological justification. And we also see the explosion of homophobia and and in particular transphobia 
in relation to these kinds of mass uprisings for racial justice, that homophobia and transphobia is often a response in the United States to these kinds of struggles for particularly Black liberation. And, you know, the, these these claims about trans grooming and all of this stuff about, like, book bannings and preventing children from having access to, you know, age-appropriate information about gender and sexuality are coinciding with these kinds of erasures of Black history. So it's important to recognize that these struggles are very, very intimately linked. So it's not enough for us to talk about the relationship between, oh, yes, well, the nuclear family and domestic labor, that is the reason for homophobia. Yes, but also and we have to talk about how this is also fundamentally designed to maintain the super exploitation and the super profits for capital through that super exploitation, through the stigmatization and justification of this oppression through discussions um, and propaganda about deviant sexuality in general, and in particular of people of color. Thank you for that outline. And I'm wondering, building on that history, can you explain the connection between this resurgence of fascism and also resurgence of transphobia in the U.S.? I think that it's important to acknowledge that, like, these strategies have multiple goals in mind, that they are, you know, related to a number of different processes that are happening throughout the capitalist system. And I think it's important to recognize that there is this this need in the wake of the crisis that we experienced during COVID and the social unrest that kind of emerged in the aftermath of the, the murder of George Floyd, that these kinds of mass popular movements that are resisting kind of the oppression of the capitalist state um, and its, you know, racist practices and, and the oppression of Black people and this was a massively popular movement. And so you have this entity of capitalism, right, trying to regain control after this kind of massive period of crisis, this, this, this mass unrest across the United States. And one of the ways that it, is, it has historically done so is through this kind of appeal to traditional morals or, you know, social conservatism. And it, it, it really kind of feels very similar to me to the 1970s. So thinking about how in the 1970s, in kind of response to these, these similar mass uprisings against, against police brutality, against economic rearrangement with neoliberalism, you know, you have the gay liberation movement emerging, you have women's liberation, you have black liberation, you have the student movement, all of these kinds of popular struggles emerging. And in response, we see this revitalization of the religious right. We see capital taking a hold of this constituency and its rhetoric as a means to kind of regain control over governmental bodies and over the economy and over the United States in general. And so I think that these moments are very, are very similar to each other in the sense that they represent, you know, a reaction to both economic crisis and economic disorder, as well as social movements and the mobilization of the working class as a kind of, not necessarily punishment, but as a reaction to this kind of mass mobilization. In analyzing the relationship between transphobia and fascism right now, 
this period, the 1970s, it, it feels very relevant because you have this attempt to obfuscate the role of the ruling class in this mass suffering of the working class, these economic upheavals, this reorganization of the state, this reorganization of the economy, and placing it onto this kind of scapegoat. And right now, that scapegoat is very much in part the specter of this trans-grooming supposed phenomena that conservatives are mobilizing around. There is this rhetoric about the threat to the family, which not only is, is a distracting tactic, but it also serves to reaffirm the kind of necessary reproduction of the labor force in the wake of a huge shock to the way that we live our lives with the COVID pandemic. In attempting to regain this control, the ruling class is kind of saying, well, it's not us that's responsible for the fact that you can't pay your rent or the fact that you can't find a job or the fact that your social safety net has been pulled out from under you. Rather, it's actually the fault of these people over here, these people who are spitting in the face of our traditional values as Americans. And this is a really effective tactic. It, it was historically with the emergence of the new right, and it led to the election of Ronald Reagan. And it's particularly effective right now. We see this kind of really intense backlash against queer and trans folks in places like Florida, where there's attempts to make drag illegal. And there are successes on this front. And that should be really alarming to any kind of Marxist or communist, because if you can restrict somebody's freedom of expression, if you can restrict somebody's access to medical care, what is happening is you are slowly but surely wearing down the hard-won freedoms that working-class people have gained through a century and longer of bloody struggle for this kind of minimal bourgeois democracy that we have. It's essential that we as communists, we as Marxists, fight back against these attacks on trans people because it's not just about trans people, and it's not just about LGBTQ people in general, and it's not just about minoritized and oppressed groups in general. It is about the destruction of democracy. That's a huge problem, and that should read as a huge problem for anybody who is committed to the struggle for the liberation of, of the working class. I mean, there is a slippery slope here between the restriction of people's ability to wear certain articles of clothing and the right to free speech, the right to protest. It seemed quite ridiculous at first to think that attacks on communists in the McCarthy era would lead to attacks on all progressive folks, and yet it did. And so I feel like we have to understand that these attacks against trans people are not marginal to the strategy of capitalism and of the ruling class. They are, in fact, key strategies which represent its, its, its tactics and its offensive against democracy and the gains of the working class. Transphobia and its relation to fascism, transphobia is a means not only by which fascism galvanizes its base, but it's also a means through which capitalism and fascism, as its, you know, kind of afterbirth, are able to wear down the rights of workers everywhere as this kind of, well, no, it's just about trans people, but it's not just about trans people, it's about everyone. Um, 
because democracy and democratic rights are a part of the larger, broader struggle for socialism in the United States. And so that's a key factor that Marxists really need to be paying attention to. It's not just kind of reacting to transphobia, but understanding its place in the strategy of the ruling class. Thank you. I really appreciate that explanation. And I was wondering now if we could turn towards speaking about one particular iteration of this intersection of fascism and transphobia, which is the masking of feminism as a a reason to be able to validate these beliefs or these supposed beliefs, and that is with TERFs. So I'm wondering if you could speak more about that as well as your class analysis around this issue. So the thing about trans-exclusionary radical feminism, what TERF stands for, for those who don't know, it's important to look at what women are leading this movement. Is this movement being led by the interests of working class women or are these the same kind of conservative ruling class mouthpieces that are trying to push this agenda? When you look at the concern or panic about trans women participating in sports or trans women being allowed to seek safety in women's shelters as a particularly and uniquely victimized group, the people who are leading this campaign they are primarily bourgeois and petty bourgeois white women who are functioning in the interests of the ruling class. This is not the same kind of feminism that represents a mobilization of working class women around women's liberation. This is a bastardization of years of feminist struggle to kind of deconstruct this notion of rigid sexuality, of rigid sex and gender systems, and understanding that these systems themselves are designed to oppress women. You have this kind of denial of the past however many years in terms of feminist theorizing and debate, um, and this return to a kind of very conservative, very reactionary brand of feminism. And that's a huge problem because it is, it's divisive in the sense that it creates issues for feminist organizers who are trying to improve the material conditions of women. And instead, conversations about feminism are being hijacked by constant 24-7 discussion about the mere presence of trans women in relation to cis women. I mean, you can think of the example of that one trans woman who placed very poorly in this kind of very large marathon, and she was asked to return her medal because she supposedly had an unfair advantage. You know, this is not the outlook of a meticulous kind of feminist analysis of gender oppression. What it is is this kind of fanatic attempt to rebrand fascism and this kind of crackdown on gender nonconformity, on sexual nonconformity, on, you know, different ways of being within the world in order to obtain, like we said earlier, these like reproductive goals of capitalism. And as well, these same women and also men who are supposedly advocating for feminism through transphobia are also mouthpieces of this return to the family. I mean, you look on Fox News and you look at the rhetoric of these kind of conservative politicians who are trying to pass bills restricting trans people's participation in public life, you know, trying to literally ban trans people from public existence. These are not allies of feminism. 
These are not allies of women's liberation struggles. These are not allies of reproductive freedom. These are the same people who are advocating for anti-choice legislation. They are advocating for this revalorization of the nuclear family and pointing to trans people and LGBTQ people in general that this group of people is trying to destroy this this foundation of American society and that they are therefore predators to women's spaces. And so I think it's important to recognize that this kind of trans-exclusionary radical feminism and its relation to fascism is a disguise to radicalize people and to engage in progressive spaces while weakening them and neutralizing attempts of people involved in struggles for women's liberation to actually, you know, kind of further the goals of this movement. This relationship between turfism and fascism is quite apparent to me when looking at this issue through a class analysis, because these are not just movements being led by everyday working mothers trying to get benefits for their family or send their kids to school. While this movement might certainly galvanize certain segments of working class women, this is a movement being led by those in power, by those who represent a reactionary ruling class agenda. And in order to counteract this ruling class agenda and these roots in fascism that all of this transphobia is undergirded, we've spoken before about the necessity of having a working class orientation towards queer movements to fight this. So I'm wondering if you could kind of speak on that and answer the question, why do we need working class folks or the proletariat leading the movement? I, again, think that history is a really good teacher on this particular issue. And I think it's really useful to look at the transition between the gay liberation movement as it emerged in the aftermath of Stonewall and the kind of reformist gay movement that emerges in the 90s and onwards as this kind of very liberal and kind of de-radicalized movement. In the aftermath of Stonewall, a few months after the uprising, you have the formation of the Gay Liberation Front. This is a movement that absolutely has its shortcomings in terms of organizational structure, and in terms of establishing like longevity. But what this movement did is it provided this new radical impetus towards queer politics that really hadn't been seen since Harry Hay and former Communist Party members along with him were, you know, expelled from the Mattachine Society. You have this movement that emerges from people who are participants in the civil rights movement people who are participants in the women's liberation movement, people who were active in the student movement with SDS. And you have a lot of people actually who are the children of Communist Party members who grew up going to the Little Red Schoolhouse, like Jonathan Ned Katz. These people are becoming leaders in this new kind of radical movement. And the gay liberation movement emerges and is kind of aligning itself with people like the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords and participating in this kind of broad attempt to dramatically restructure the United States. You have them talk about, you know, the interconnection between imperialism abroad and the Vietnam War and the oppression of queer people back in the United States. And so you have this like really beautiful and newly empowered queer movement. But as time goes on, you have this petty bourgeois sector take control of the movement. 
And a lot of this is particularly attributable to distinct kind of economic transformations um, within the United States, as well as like mass kind of societal problems that emerged within the 80s, particularly the AIDS epidemic. Part of my research is involved with understanding how we can materially analyze the transformations of United States society in order to understand the class dynamics of how the gay movement was de-radicalized and how this kind of like emergent radical queer politics is co-opted and eventually kind of defanged almost. So you have the formation of these of these gay neighborhoods in the mid 20th century. And they form around these these gay businesses, and they form around a specific kind of like gay economy. And eventually what happens is with the advent of the gay liberation movement and the kind of declaration for people to come out as a part of political struggle is you have the, the gay liberation movement wearing away societal homophobia and these homophobic laws and it creates the potential for there to be kind of a stable gay economy within these gayberhoods, if you will. And what this really does is throughout the 70s, it really empowers a specific class strata of the LGBTQ population. You have predominantly white gay men who come from wealth or who are in the upper classes of society being able to, you know, come out and pursue career advancement as a gay person. These people kind of begin to shape the political movement as the gay liberation front is dying out. And this happens as the result of a number of things, both organizational weakness, you know, the gay liberation front was really basically allergic to organization. There were no leaders and there were no officers. It was just everybody had to have, you know, like a unanimous decision um, in order to move forward with things. So you have things like the Gay Activist Alliance emerge. And this is a much less radical kind of organization, but it is a lot more effective. And so you have these kinds of two contending perspectives, this kind of more reformist approach and this more revolutionary approach, even if there are flaws within it. As neoliberalism begins to kind of take hold of the economy and there are these great restructurings of, of society, this kind of post-war prosperity that not only allowed for, you know, these kinds of gay neighborhoods to emerge by like the massive kind of flight of, of white working class families into suburbia and the suburbanization of the white American population. This kind of post-war prosperity was also the impetus for the, this kind of ongoing sexual revolution that happened in the United States, not just within queer politics, but generally, you know, with the student movement and all of these kinds of young people's rejection of this kind of 1950s nuclear family ideology that we were discussing earlier. But with these kinds of economic transformations, the gay liberationist impulse kind of begins to die out. It doesn't completely vanish, but this kind of reformist approach definitely begins to take more of a hold than it had. And more than anything, the impact of the HIV AIDS crisis fully cemented the shift within the class politics of the queer movement. Because what you have is HIV AIDS required gay activists, trans activists to enter in relationship to the government in a new way for like the first time in order to get the resources that LGBTQ people needed in order to cope with and fight HIV AIDS. 
people had to enter into these kinds of alliances with with governmental agencies. And the formation of these new kinds of organizations really allowed for a distinctly bourgeois political orientation to take hold. You had all of these people who gay politics didn't really matter to them because they were wealthy or at least somewhat well off. And these laws that led to police entrapment or, you know, the raiding of gay bars weren't necessarily the most pressing thing to many people in this strata of the population. But this kind of economic privilege and this like economic prosperity couldn't defeat HIV AIDS. It couldn't protect people from infection. While it may have certainly helped with, you know, affording treatment of some kind, it definitely wasn't curing it and it wasn't protecting from it. And as this kind of working class or revolutionary impulse is is fading out of these kinds of political struggles, you have this very economically powerful new constituency entering into the arena. And so these men create these organizations that did a lot of really important and necessary work in terms of, of, of fighting the epidemic. But at the same time, it also created a new kind of gay organization. And this allowed for people to seek upward mobility and class ascendancy through politics. And so you have this kind of solidification of this bourgeois orientation to understanding the struggle of LGBTQ people in the United States. And this is really cemented after the HIV AIDS crisis. And it continues to kind of take hold of queer politics as you know, the decades progress. And, you know, you see the emergence of the marriage equality movement, the movement to try and allow gay people to be in the military. And while marriage equality is certainly a progressive struggle, and it's certainly a progressive win, marriage equality was not the most pressing issue to many who were in the LGBTQ working class. After the, you know, the kind of advent of neoliberalism, this is a a group of people who are really taking a hard hit. This kind of illustrates the importance of providing and demanding working class leadership in any kind of popular struggle against these these attacks on queer and trans people right now. If we are to get reforms that are most directed towards the most oppressed stratum of the population, we have to make sure that there is a revolutionary kind of orientation to the movement. And that means that we need to fight for communist leadership within the movement against this kind of rising transphobia and in its relation to fascist politics right now. Because otherwise, we are going to get the same kind of results as we have for the past however many decades. We have reforms that are passed that are great, you know, like these are important achievements, but at the same time, they most serve the middle and upper classes. And that's a real problem in terms of providing a revolutionary solution to these issues, because it's not capitalism, but socialism that can actually provide liberation for queer and trans people. As we are kind of rolling back equality, or at least our stepping stones to it in the United States, places like Cuba are passing these unprecedented progressive legislation with the family code, you know, this kind of redefinition of what the family is, this not just simple gay rights measure, but this kind of broad restructuring of the expectations of society and the expectations of the family. And while the socialist movement has at times kind of mirrored the larger homophobia of society, it is still provided the most progressive spaces in terms of LGBTQ equality. When we think of of places like East Germany, 
sure there were many difficulties that queer and trans people experienced, you know, during this time period. But at the same time, East Germany had two chapters of the Free Democratic Youth, you know, their kind of version of the Young Communist League that were specifically for gay people. And, you know, it was during the 80s, the most progressive place, really, for people to be queer in the world. This kind of progressive politics also was what, you know, encouraged Cuba to legalize homosexuality and to become a leader in this struggle. It's really important that we recognize that as long as there is this imperative for the reproduction of the labor force to serve the ends of capitalism, queer and trans people cannot have equality. And we've seen that from the reforms, that these reforms did not bring about, you know, this kind of mass transformation of society. We have to look at reforms as a means to an end rather than a, well, that's it, we're done now which many liberal constituencies did upon the passing of marriage equality and were shocked to wake up during the pandemic and where we are now to find these kinds of reforms being rolled back in mass. And, you know, it's because of this lack of a revolutionary outlook within the movement that really holds us back in terms of gaining these things that queer and trans people desperately need in order to live our lives. Well, thank you so much, Bennett, for joining us today with this conversation. And to everybody listening, please reach out to your local YCL if you're not already involved. Many groups are working with coalitions to fight back against the transphobia and fascism that's been ever present recently. You can get some resources for suggested books in the show notes. And there will also be handles for Bennett personally and also for other educational organizations like the Claudia Jones School in D.C. and the Little Red Library in Philadelphia.